You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Wilson. Well, hey guys, uh, good morning. If you don't know me, my name's Adam, one of the pastors here. Uh, before we start, I want to jump on uh, Megan's plug for watch parties. It has been one of the things I've really noticed is how much personal presence, especially in a worship arena, a worship experience, really matters. Um, the first three or four weeks, I wasn't getting that. And then we started coming here and doing the live stream here. There's, there's uh, five or six of us here behind the scenes. And I, I will say just getting to worship uh, in person, even with just three or four or five people is incredibly great. So uh, I wanna encourage you if you're comfortable to sign up for a watch party this week, space is limited. So uh, make sure you do it or space limited right now. We're gonna, we're gonna keep making spots, but just sign up quick. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, hey, I wanna, I wanna celebrate a milestone uh, with you in my marriage, actually, I, I don't uh, to start. Uh, I uh, really have been celebrating it all week. Uh, for the first time, I finally got my bride, Jen, to watch a Marvel movie. It's like a big deal for me, okay? So I've been trying for a long time uh, to get her to watch one. And after nagging, nagging, I've just been like the nagging husband, ever, you know, she finally agreed. She's like, okay, I'll watch one Marvel movie. And so then I'm like, yes! But like, then it's like, which one do I choose, right? There's a lot of them, and this could determine her whole experience and view of Marvel movies. So, uh, this is a big deal. What is the gateway Marvel movie? to get people in. Uh, I wonder what you would choose. Actually, maybe you could like put it in the comments section, like which one you would choose. I'd be really interested to hear your answers. Um, but there is, just so you know, there is one right answer. Um, and I chose the right answer. And that right answer is the Black Panther. Um, that is the right movie to start with, I, in my opinion. This is such a good movie. And of course, Jen loved it. I think more than she even thought she would. And we've been rolling through Iron Man 1, Iron Man 2. I think we're gonna watch Iron Man 3 tonight. Like we are rolling now and she's still going. And uh, the reason I bring that up is this passage today really reminds me of the core conflict that we find in this passage. The, the core conflict in Black Panther reminds me of the passage we're studying today. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie, you are missing out on a cultural treasure. So I'd encourage you to watch it. Um, but it, basically, I'll give you a short summary. In the movie, the main character, his name is Prince T'Challa, he's faced with this challenging, um, really, conflict. Does he serve and, and build up Wakanda, his home country, as king, or at the expense of the rest of the world, or does he serve the rest of the world at the potential danger of his country? Which kingdom does he fight for? And Prince T'Challa is contrasted with his dad, who his name is King T'Chaka. And King T'Chaka, he fought for serving Wakanda only um, at the expense of helping the rest of the world. And so we're faced with this, this conflict. And because King T'Chaka fights for his kingdom only, the kingdom of Wakanda only, he justifies some decisions, uh, namely abandoning, in, abandoning his orphan nephew, who eventually grows up to become this like master villain and almost wrecks the whole kingdom because of his decision. So one king decides to serve his kingdom only. The other king, faced with the same decision, uh, wants to serve a, a bigger and a greater kingdom. 
In our first Samuel text today, we have this really similar comparison between this father and son. Uh, the contrast is between uh, King Saul and his son, Jonathan. We could even call him Prince Jonathan. Uh, one's committed to his own self-centered kingdom. Uh, the other is committed to faithfully serving a much bigger kingdom, namely God's kingdom. Uh, King Saul builds his own kingdom, and the result is discouragement and destruction. But his son, Jonathan, he's building uh, another kingdom, God's kingdom, and the result is refreshment and salvation. And uh, this contrast, I believe that God is giving us this contrast of father and son in one in part to get us to ask this question to ourselves. Whose kingdom are you building? Whose kingdom are you building? That's the title of the sermon, and that's the question we're going to be wrestling around with uh, just today, that one simple question. But before I do jump in, I do want to pause and address this word kingdom. Uh, It's not this everyday uh, language and and word that we use in our context right now in our culture. And so, um, but this idea of God's kingdom is really from Genesis in the Garden of Eden to Revelation at the end of the scriptures and the fulfillment of everything, of God's story, this idea of of God's kingdom is spread and thread throughout the Bible. There are definitely uh, different definitions out there, but I really like this short, simple one. I love simple definitions uh, by a guy named Graham Goldsworthy, and uh, this is how he defines God's kingdom. He says, God's kingdom is God's people and God's place under God's rule. God's people in God's place under God's rule. So here in 1 Samuel, God's people are the nation of Israel. His place is the the tabernacle in Jerusalem, and he rules over them as God and king in covenant relationship. And now for us as Christians, in Christ, we are, as Christians, are the people of God. Um, Jesus rules his people from a place, heaven, in covenant relationship with those people. And friends, every day, you and I will expend our resources, our time, our energy, our grit, our money in building towards someone's kingdom, either uh, your kingdom or God's kingdom. You can build up God's people, God's rule, God's place, or you can build up and attempt to build up your people and your rule and your place of comfort. And answering this question is so important for us, and I'm taking this time before to kind of lay the groundwork for us, because here's the big idea I want you to get, that building your own kingdom invites loss, but building God's kingdom brings reward. And you're going to see this thread throughout our whole, just the ideas of this whole text. And if you're a Christian, you might be hearing this and this question, whose kingdom do I serve, and thinking like, bro, that's a dumb question. I'm a Christian. I serve God's kingdom. Like, duh. Like, why are we asking this question? I, I want to caution you uh, of being too quick to just jump to that um, assumption. Because this text shows us that King Saul uh, himself, I think he deceived himself and others around him. Everyone thought he was serving God's kingdom, right? But subversively and subtly, he was really working just to build his own. In every Christian, there is a war of kingdom loyalty. We have been saved. We've been given a new heart. We've been transferred into God's kingdom. It says uh, that in Colossians, we've been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his dear son, Jesus. 
But our old ways, what the Bible calls the way of the flesh, will, are still at war in conflict within us, just whispering in our ear that returning to serving your own kingdom is really best. And there's a day coming where, this is also why this is so important, there's a day coming where what we build towards will be shown for what it is. Listen to these few verses from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I, I want you to listen closely because this, is, this is, speaks into our text a lot. Is what Paul writes. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation of the Gospels, what are you talking about? With gold or silver or precious stones or wood or hay or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it'll be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work has built on the foundation survives, he will receive reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as one through fire. So do you hear that again? Suffering loss, getting reward, depending on what kingdom you're building towards. What he's saying is there is a day coming where the work of every Christian will be revealed for exactly what it is, as either precious and lasting or worthless and fleeting. Now, this isn't an issue of salvation. He's talking about people that are, that are saved, right? That's what the text says. But which kingdom you spend yourself building will have eternal significance and eternal ripples in your life for you and for me. And so this morning, as we work through the text, I want to outline just five kind of evaluative questions to really help us answer this one big question, whose kingdom am I building? Five questions to help answer this one question. Hope that's not confusing. <laughs> Whose kingdom am I building? I do, um, Anthony prayed. I just want to pray for us real quick. Uh, just invite God to help us evaluate our own hearts. Uh, let's do that real quick. Father, um, thanks for your word. Thanks for that you speak to us through passages that are more well, well known and passages like this that are honestly a little harder and more challenging for us to unpack. But we believe your word convicts, encourages, uh, exhorts, admonishes, that it, it, it does the work that it needs to. And so Holy Spirit, come in us, do the work of your word. And uh, namely, I just ask right now that you would, uh, you would just, we'd be like the psalmist and saying, God, just examine my heart. See if you can find any grievous way in me. I want you to search me. I don't want to hide from my sin. I want to see it. I want to see how you want me to grow. And I pray that would be uh, the heart and attitude of every single person listening right now. And we know that only happens by a miraculous work of your spirit. And so we pray for that miraculous transforming grace right now in the powerful, matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Five questions. Five questions. The first one, do you think of your life more in terms of me or my or his? Do you think of your life more in terms of my or his? Real quick to unpack this, if you were with us last week, God had just given this great victory to Israel through Jonathan over their longtime enemies, the, the Philistines. And Jonathan and his armor bearer, they just went ham on this whole army all by themselves, and God gave them victory. Uh, if you didn't listen to that sermon, I encourage you to go back and do that uh, from Pastor Mutasib. And this is the last verse of last week's passage. Verse 23. Listen to this. This is the last verse, how they ended. It's a good summary statement. So the Lord saved Israel that day. That was the summary verse, the summary statement. So you get this picture of like, yay, we're saved. God saved us. We won. Like, let's celebrate. Like, that's the attitude that we ended with last week. But King Saul, in the first verse that we have now, 
It's meant to show a contradiction. Listen to this very next verse, verse 24. And the men of Israel had been hard pressed that day. So Saul laid an oath on the people saying, cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening and I'm avenged on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. So you gotta get this like, yay, it's time to celebrate. It's time to eat food and feast. And Saul's like, no, no feasting, no eating, no celebrating. Uh, we need to, uh, I'm gonna keep getting you after this. And most of your Bibles title this section, Saul's Rash Vow. And it's fitting because this is really a, a, a dumb move. This is a time to be victorious, not to uh, and celebrate, not to just uh, shackle people. And, but in an act to try to spur them on, he just says, nope, no rest, no food, keep fighting, even though you're exhausted, the text says faint. And, and we have to ask, why would Saul do this? Why is he just gonna make this rash decision, this rash vow? There are some subtle clues in how Saul has steered away from building up God's kingdom. And um, how you can tell is actually by the pronouns. I'm gonna get a little grammar on you, so get ready. Uh, but you can tell by the pronouns. Listen to this one more time. This is what Saul says. Cursed be every man until I am avenged on my enemies. It might seem subtle, but to, to Saul, what he's saying is this is all about him. Saul's saying, these are my people. This is my army. These are my enemies, my problem, and ultimately my kingdom to protect. And when God commissioned Saul back in chapter 9, if you've been with us, that's not how this was supposed to go. God said that Saul would be a prince over his people, Israel. That Saul would save his people from the hands of his enemies, the Philistines. So Saul's pride caused him to get his pronouns wrong. He forgot he was building God's kingdom. In the same way, I think our pronouns really can reveal whose kingdom you are building as well. I want you to think about the things that you hold most dear in your life, most precious, find most security in. And I want you just to think about this question. Whose do you think they are? Like, really, I, I know you know the right answer, but, but really be honest. Whose do you really think they are? What pronoun do you most often put in front of those things? Is it his bank account and his kids and his dreams and his five-year plan? Or do you most often think, this is my money, this is my time, these are my kids, this is my five-year plan, these are my dreams to do with whatever I deem necessary with? And Christian, if you are a Christian, I, I wanna just lovingly remind you, you died. The old you is dead, your stuff is not yours. Listen to this beautiful reality from Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So the, the pre-Jesus youth thought everything was yours. You put my in front of everything, right? But, but now that Christ is in you, you realize everything is really his, everything. And if you really know this, it's not burdening, it's actually freeing. Because we are free just to trust and let things enter our life and also leave our life as God sees fit because it's all his. So whether in plenty or scarcity, fullness or hunger, comfort or uh, struggle, we're content, we're free, because Jesus has given that to us. 
So when your thinking is consumed more with his over mine, that's a sign that you are building towards God's kingdom and not your own. That's question one. Uh, question two, are people the goal or the vehicle to your goal? Are people the goal or the vehicle to your goal? So Saul makes this rash oath and he makes just people even more discouraged and exhausted and aggravated with his oath. They're hungry, tired, and now they are just fearful of this life-threatening command of the king. And Israel comes to this forest and they come across the ultimate Old Testament fasting temptation, a big honeypot, right, sitting there in the woods. Now, they don't touch the honey because they, they know they're going to get punished if they, they taste it, they have some self-control. But, but Jonathan strolls along and he sees the honeypot sitting there and he, he doesn't know about the, the oath, right? He doesn't know that his father has said this. So Jonathan's been going Rambo like all day, right? No rest. And he comes across the honeypot. And of course, what happens to him happened to all of us. Would, would have, or we would have done the same thing. Our inner, inner poo bear would have come out and dipped a hand in the honeypot, right? You know you would have. Now, and when he takes it, this is what it says. His eyes became bright. And uh, whenever I hear this, I think of um, a lot of times when Jen and I go on a date uh, back BC, before Corona, when we used to go on dates uh, out. Uh, we would go to dinner. And man, there were lots of times where I was, you know, anticipate going out. We wouldn't have eaten. I was usually going hungry. We had just had a little bit of stress getting the kids ready for the babysitter. And I'm going out and man, I'm like probably not the most loving husband. I'm like a little hangry, right? I'm just ready to get the food. I'm sitting down. I'm not asking a lot of questions. I'm probably a little grumbly. And as soon as I just get a roll with some butter on it and eat it, all of a sudden I like transform. Hey, babe, how's your babe been? Oh man, I'm so happy to hang out with you. Like, um... And it, I picture this in Jonathan, too, just this transformation, right? And once uh, the people see him eating, they tell Jonathan, this is what they tell him, dude, you're, you're doomed. Like, your dad said anyone that eats anything is going to die. And listen to Jonathan's reply in verse 29 and 30. He says, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better it was would be if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of the enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines would not have been great, has not been great. So you can see again the contrast of Saul and Jonathan as he openly disagrees with his dad here. So Saul lays this heavy burden on the people to accomplish his own goals, but he's going to exhaust and discourage and expend God's people for his goals. They're vehicles to his success. But Jonathan is the opposite. He shows care for the people. He wants their refreshment. He wants their rest. He's concerned with their well-being. And I want you to ask yourself, which do you find yourself more like? Do you see people around you more as vehicles to accomplish your goals, or are they the goal? Another way to ask this maybe is, are people here to serve you, or are you there to serve people? Uh, I want you to think about just some of the big, biggest overarching well-known commands in the Bible for Christians. Um, one is, is the great commandment, where Jesus says the, the top two commandments are that you love God and you love your neighbor as yourself, and all the law and the prophets hinge on this. Or the Great Commission, we're meant to go and therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. Yeah. 
And uh, uh, even you can think about our vision statement as a church. If you don't know it, this is why we exist. Our vision statement says that we're, RCC is a church planning movement fueled by the gospel that reaches Baltimore and cities around the world. And all of these are focused around loving God and loving people. A ferocious love for people is essential to the framework of God's mission for us. You can't take that away and still be on mission for God. And yet, my fear is so often we see people as in the way of our goals, or at best, just check boxes for us to for um, for them to comply under our efforts of control for our desired outcome. And to be honest with you, just transparently, this is all too easy to feel this way as a pastor especially when I have weeks with stress and lots of meetings and uh, where I am just not focused on my true goal, I start to see people not as the goal, but in the way. Why are these people getting in the way of our church growing? Why are these people in the way with their uh, struggles and problems, right? And it's so convicting because then God will wake me up and say, dude, these are, they are the goal. Your goal is to love and care for and shepherd and disciple and teach. Not to like build something that you just think you're supposed to build with, with RCC's name on it or something like that. And if you, if you find yourself in church thinking more about what you can get more than what you can give, you, you might be building the wrong kingdom. If you see your job or your family or your friends there to serve your goals, you may be building the wrong kingdom. Because when you use people to accomplish your goals, you'll actually find a depth of intimacy and enjoyment of others to be elusive to you. You will lose the joy and intimacy in those relationships. But if you lay down your lives to serve others, it shows that you're building God's kingdom and actually you will get the reward of having deep enjoyment and intimacy that you would not otherwise have with people in your life. So that's number two. Are people the goal or the vehicle to your goal? Question three, remember we're after the ultimate heading question, whose kingdom do you serve? Third evaluative question, do you seek God for show? Do you seek God for show? Later in the passage, King Saul decides he wants to keep fighting uh, all night. And Saul says this, he says, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. So Saul has an agenda. Let's go catch these Philistines. We're going to just take it to them all night and fight them uh, until there's no more. So he's basically walking out the door to give the orders. And at last minute, the last second, really, the priest comes in and is like, hey, um, Saul, you forgetting something, man? Like, uh, these are God's people, you know, God's mission, God's enemies. Like, maybe you should, like, just see, inquire of him. Maybe you should pray about it. Just see if that's what he wants you to do. And you picture Saul, just, I imagine Saul just being, oh, yeah, 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 I was about to do that, man. Thanks for the reminder. Yeah, let's, uh, let's definitely do that. Let's, uh, let's come here and seek God together. But really, we know what's going on. He's just, he's seeking God for show. And we can be critical here, but uh, we, we all do this in different ways. We, we plan and plan and plan and we make a decision and then at the last minute stick a Jesus approved sticker and a prayer and a Bible verse on there and we're good to go, right? 
And this is evidence that our interest in God is, is primarily for him to bless us or even, even heed to our uh, direction of our kingdom. And I've seen this just as an example. I've seen this a lot in people's decisions to, uh, to move. They answer all the important questions, right? Uh, does the job pay enough? Um, where can I get a house or, or an apartment? What's the school system like? Is there a Target, a Trader Joe's, and a Chick-fil-A all within a two-mile radius? And, and then after figuring out all the important answers with their minds already made up, then we come to God and say, God, what, what do you want me to do? I'll do anything. I'll do whatever you want. But in reality, you just already have your main mind made up. They aren't listening. They just want a Jesus-approved sticker on the plans they've already made. One other way to help helpfully think about this question is, is uh, to think about, if you seek God for show, is to think about your, your secret life. What I mean by that is when no one else is watching. Jesus talks about this a lot in Matthew 6. But he, he says, hey, you should look at your spiritual life and look what it's like when no one else is watching. How do you pray when no one else is around? What do you decide to watch when no one else is around or watching you? When you give and serve to others, do other people just coincidentally always find out about it? And this is why Jesus says in Matthew 6, 1, he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. So Jesus is saying, when, when you seek me with all your heart, you're not gonna do it for people's affirmation and praise. You won't care about that. You, you, won't, you may not get a reward from people, but you have a reward coming in heaven that is much richer and much more valuable. But when you seek God for show, you might get some pats on the back and some thumbs up and a good game, but that's it. That's all you're getting. You show that you're building, that you're not building God's kingdom, but you're just piddling away at building your own. Do you seek God for show? Number four, do you have people in your life who can rebuke you? I've talked about this before previously in another sermon, but I, I thought good to hit this again. Um, as the passage goes on, there's, there's a growing magnitude of Saul's just crazy, foolish decisions. Saul keeps proposing these crazy ideas, trying to just put out his own fires, just reacting, and just honestly creating more mess. And uh, another problem is he's just surrounded by yes people, by yes men and women. Just some examples. He's just making some crazy decisions. And verse 36, people say, yeah, man, do what seems good to you. Or a few verses later, makes another bad decision. Uh, but there was not a man among the people who answered him. They just stayed silent. Again, in the next verse, hey, Saul, yeah, just do, do what seems good to you. It's clear that people see that he's making some dumb decisions here, but they'd rather go along with the chaos rather than take blowback for standing up and expressing their, um, their feedback. And, and Saul has created a system for himself where he is free to build his own kingdom without any pushback, without any rebuke. And I wonder if there are areas in your life where you have uh, attempted or have successfully done the same thing. If you've created a padded system where there is something or an area of your life that you keep people at a certain distance from, an area of your life that even trusted friends can't speak into, maybe it's your job aspirations, maybe it's your physical relationship with your boyfriend or girlfriend, maybe it's how you spend your money, areas of your life that if anyone gets too close, you just defense mechanism, you got to push them away. 
And finally, though, towards the end of this story, the, the foolishness that Saul's going after has reached this level of absurdity. Saul's ready to put his own son, Jonathan, to death because he ate honey. It's just, the conclusion is crazy. You ate honey, therefore you have to die. I mean, you gotta see, like, just the craziness of that. And he's, the hammer's about to go down, and the people finally speak up. This is what they say to Saul. Shall Jonathan die who has worked who has worked this great salvation for Israel. Far from it, as the Lord lives, there shall not be one hair on his head that will fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. I love this phrase. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. So they finally do speak up. They couldn't stay silent because this is just so absurd. The guy that just saved them is going to be put to death for putting his hand in some honey. And the people's courage to love goodness and to love Jonathan above their own little kingdoms compelled them to confront Saul's foolish decision. Uh, the text says they ransomed Jonathan. They, they stood in the gap. They basically had risked to themselves, stood in the way of the impending king's wrath at their own expense so that they could save him. And when you invite others in to examine your life and your standards, you show that Man, that you want God's kingdom more than your own. I, I want people like that in my life, and I want to be that kind of person for other people. That even at, at the cost and the expense of myself or themselves, they love me enough to rebuke me, to confront me. Last question, number five. Do you value what God or what history says about you? Let me explain this. So Saul, Saul's reign came to an end. His kingship's already been rejected by God. Actually, in verse 13, or in chapter 13, God has said, Saul, uh, you're not going to be king anymore. Your reign is coming to an end. I'm going to cut off your, uh, your heritage. No more of your sons will be kings. Uh, you're done, man. And we see Saul going off the rails more and more. But the end of this section of 1 Samuel, we, we get a summary of Saul's life that's, that's kind of weird. It's really positive, and it's strange. Let me read it for you again. It's just verses 47 and 48. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Just imagine he read only this about Saul's life. I, honestly, I think you and I would be like, man, pretty good job, right? Fighting against your enemies, valiant, always won, delivered God's people, expanded territory. Uh, that's probably a life, seems like a life pretty well lived to me. So, so why are there two different pictures here? Why is there this positive picture, but then really this really negative picture alongside it of Saul? It's because there's two ways to view someone's life and legacy, through a, a human lens or through God's lens. From, from a human perspective, God, or Saul did a great job. He did what kings during his time were supposed to do. He did it through the lens of history. Saul rocked it out, right? But through a different lens, that uh, really namely the lens of faithfulness to God's kingdom, Saul failed. Uh, I would say miserably. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis, he's a commentator around... First Samuel, I like, he just summarizes it really uh, simply. He says, covenant obedience matters far more than vocational achievement. 
So Saul achieved a lot in the world's economy, but he experienced loss in God's economy. And right, right now, there's a common kind of, I would almost say threat that's made in our culture right now, in our culture wars that are going on right now. It goes something like this. You better go along with X agenda or X belief because if you don't, you'll be on the wrong side of history. I, I'm sure you've probably heard something like that. It's an assumption that this argument is saying that the human interpretation of history is the ultimate moral judge that we should abide by. And this argument tries to put human opinion interpretation in the judgment seat over and above the God that judges history, Yahweh. And friends, I, I want to I want to say that many people that find themselves on the right side of humans' interpretation of history will be on the wrong side of God. They may have achieved much in the world's value system, but the whole time they were only looking just to build their own kingdoms, not build God's kingdom. And on the flip side of that, if you are obedient to build God's kingdom, you will make decisions that will put you, in a sense, on the wrong side of humans' interpretation of history. But I want to remind you, it doesn't matter. Our ears only long to hear well done from one person, not from history, not from any other people in our life, but only from one voice, from God's voice. We often maintain this fallacy, I do this all the time in our head, that if we follow God with all we have, with all our heart and all our strength and all our mind and everything we have, then we can also be liked and respected and understood and praised by people and by most people and maybe everyone. And uh, I want to remind you, that's a fallacy. That's not true. I love what Galatians 1.10 says. Paul says, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. If you want to please man, you will not serve Christ. If your actions and your thoughts are constantly driven by humanity or someone's interpretation of you, you can be sure that you are not building God's kingdom. So whose kingdom are you building? Building your own kingdom just invites loss, but building God's kingdom will bring reward, eternal reward. As we look at this comparison between Saul and Jonathan, it's a, it's a stark contrast, right? Unlike his father, Jonathan is going to continue to lead a model life of a life lived well for God's kingdom for us as we continue through 1 Samuel. But as we continue, we're also going to see that Jonathan's life is a tragedy, in a certain sense. This dude is true king material in, in a lot of ways more than his dad. He should be the king, right? Because I think he could do a good job. But Jonathan's life doesn't turn out as we expect it would. He ends up passed over for the kingship and he ends up dying alongside his father under a really punished, a death of punishment. And this really leads us to ask, this, this is a contradiction. How can Jonathan's life just turn out this way? A guy that has faithfully served God, build up his kingdom, has such a tragic ending to his life. And uh, I honestly, even right now in this season, find ourselves asking these hard questions about uh, ourselves or people around us. We see sickness and death and struggle and abandonment uh, in the lives of people that seem to be serving and running after Jesus and just ask like, why? Is this, isn't this a contradiction? 
I want to remind you that it's not. I, I love what Dale Ralph Davis says about Jonathan's life in light of it being a tragedy or a seeming tragedy. That's what he says. He says, the kingdom was not Saul's or Jonathan's. It was Yahweh's kingdom. For Jonathan, then the kingdom was not his to seize, not his to rule, but his to serve. Listen to this. Maybe a tragic life isn't tragic if it's lived in fidelity to what Christ asked of us in the circumstances that he gives us. So in our view, Jonathan's life could be a tragic, an end in tragedy, but in God's view, it's a life well lived for God's kingdom. He seeks to build God's kingdom in whatever role he's given. Faithfulness in building God's kingdom is not in demanding a set of circumstances of blessing, but saying, God, I'm about your rule, I'm about your fame, I'm about your people and your mission. No matter what role, no matter what happens to me, no matter what you want to do, that's what I'm about. And friends, that is not a tragedy no matter what happens. I know a lot of you are, are experiencing circumstances that seem traumatic or uh, just hard right now. But friends, you even amidst those can have a life well-lived building God's kingdom and there is great reward for a life like that. And as we close, I wanna remind you, we can live this life well building God's kingdom only because of our Savior, Jesus. He lived the ultimate life building his Father's kingdom. And I wanna just consider these five questions again and, and just look briefly at how Jesus' life answers these questions. Jesus had more right to say my kingdom, my mission, my people, more than anyone. But if you look, his constant refrain was his. He was all about his father's things. Jesus didn't see people in the way of his goal or as vehicles to his goal. He treated them as the goal. As much as people even tried to impede his effort to love them and his mission, Jesus loved the people to the utmost. He was the one that did the, the true and better ransoming, giving up his precious life to a people that rebelled against him, buying us back. He didn't seek God for show. He was, Jesus was always trying to get away with his father secretly. He didn't worry about pleasing the history writers. You know, the, the Roman Empire were the history writers of the day. He only cared about what his father's voice said. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. So friends, let's set our eyes on Jesus this week. The ultimate life well lived for God's kingdom and, and through us. Let's partner. Let's lock our arms together, family, to build God's kingdom together. So it can be in Baltimore as it is in heaven. Let's pray to that end. Father, we just want to give you praise because if we're in Christ, you have transferred us from the domain of darkness. We were serving the domain of darkness and you ransomed us and you transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved son forever. And God, it's in that reality that we want to live, but we just confess, man, we struggle. We struggle to build your kingdom so often in our lives. It's my stuff, it's my money, it's my time. It's our king, it's just about our kingdom, our little world, and we try to get you to revolve around it. 
how silly, <laughs> how crazy is that? And you still love us. God, we, we don't want to piddle around with just fleeting things. We want to be about the things of your kingdom. We want to be about the name and kingdom of Jesus going forth in this city. This city needs the kingdom of God, the kingdom of your dear son so much. And so God, would you use us with a white hot passion for your kingdom, rule our hearts, conquer our hearts today, conquer our hearts this week so that we would see the kingdom of God go forth in this city and around the world. We just want to be used. I, I'm so grateful you use such a broken people. What a magnificent evidence of grace. God, we love you. Thanks that your grace is new and transforming every day. We give this time to you. In Jesus' holy and precious name, amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find another message or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church Podcast.